Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We are in a series in Ephesians on the home. If you were um, listening as I prayed, if you're here for the first time, if you've been here recently, you know that this is where we are. We just had a couple of uh, sermons uh, for wives. Uh, and this morning, we are um, moving into a section that has to do with husbands. I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 25, and I'm going to read uh, through verse um, 27 this morning. And this is where we're going to spend our morning, is between verses 25 and 27. Husband loves, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Um, there's really only one command in this passage for husbands. And the passage continues on through verse 32 that we'll be looking at next week. But there's really only one central command for husbands, and it is this. Husbands, love your wives. The only command there for husbands, uh, the rest of the passage really deals with sort of amplifying and explaining what that's supposed to, uh, uh, how that fleshes out. Um, and the model for this love that the husband is called to is the love that Christ had for his bride, the church. <clears throat> for all the objections that I've heard over the years, um, in regards to wives submitting to their husbands, I've never to this day ever heard someone object to this charge for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I've never heard a single objection to this or anyone say, wait a minute, this is just crazy. I mean, think about this. A husband's love for his wife, a husband is called to a love that is so profound that it models the sacrificial love that Christ had for the church. I've never heard a single objection. I mean, just take this in for a minute. That, that is not exactly a low bar. I mean, just think about that for a minute. It's not a low bar at all. I mean, I, we should remember together that he died on a cross, right? Like bled. Like we're not talking a figurative, metaphorical experience. He literally was nailed to a piece of wood and died naked, publicly, heaving, drowning, virtually, in front of his friends and family. No objections? I mean, is anybody really thinking about this? Remember, too, that he suffered the greatest injustice this world has ever known. On behalf of this bride, by the way. And ironically, in place of this bride. No objections. Remember, too, that he left the bliss of heaven to put on flesh and to live as a peasant and to ultimately live as a servant for this bride, the church. Man, when you really consider what we've been called to, it makes me wonder why there's no objections to this command for husbands. I'd like to publicly offer one today. I object. <laughs> I mean, really, this seems like it's truly an impossibility. It seems like it's a call to Everest. Really. I mean, really, does seriously anyone think that they can really do this? 
Is there a single man in this room, husband, that actually believes that you can live for your wife this way? If there's a single woman in this room that's expecting her husband to live this way, I've got really bad news for you. You're going to be severely and daily and perpetually disappointed. I feel like today, I hope today, is going to put this command in perspective. I hope that today that um, what's going to happen in these next few minutes is something that's never happened to me before in studying this passage. That together we're going to fix our eyes on Everest. For Everest's sake. Let me explain that. I've preached this passage once for sure, I know. In 2008, I preached this passage in what a series of sermons are called the Dib Series, um, 2008. I know I've taught this passage before because I taught through Ephesians on Wednesday nights years before that. I know that I've referred to this passage a number of times in premarital counseling. I know some couples in here that I have married, and I know this was home base for us. And in fact, I know that I've preached from this passage in doing weddings. I know, too, that I've referred to this passage on countless occasions doing marital counseling for those who are already married. I've also, too, considered this passage devotionally for me as a husband to Christy and thinking about what this passage actually means for me. I, in essence, though, I want you to understand what has really clobbered me this week is really that I realize that I've looked past Christ a hundred times making a beeline for my job description. Studying this passage, preaching this passage, teaching this passage, counseling with this passage. I have looked past Christ a hundred times and in essence just said, Lord, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Almost like looking to Paul, like he's going to give me my to-do list, my chores as a husband. In so doing, what I think I've done in making a beeline to my chores and my to-dos is I've effectively said, Jesus, can you move? Can you move out of the way? I mean, yeah, yeah, we've got the whole sacrifice thing. Can you move out of the way so I can really get to the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing? It's clobbered me. I think for the first time, I'm reading this passage for Christ's sake and not for me and not for the people I'd be preaching to and not for the dudes I'd be teaching to, but just for Everest's sake. I studied this passage and I'll preach this passage. I studied this passage this week and I'll preach this passage today simply As the bride of Christ, understanding our groom. Okay, I'm going to get to husbands next week. There'll be a little bit in there for husbands today, if you're paying attention. But I promise next week, I'm going to try and use some slides, you know, some overheads, and the laser pointer, in case any ladies are feeling like, hey, I want to make sure the guys get some laser pointer action. I promise we're going to go there. But today, I want us to just enjoy our groom. I think it might reframe marriage for all of us right in the middle of a marriage 
series. What I'm going to do in these passages, verses 25 through 27, is I'm going to ask and answer three questions. First, what did Jesus, our groom, do for us? That's the first question we're going to deal with. Secondly, how did he do this for us? Once we've answered that question, you'll know what the this is. How did he do it for us? And third, why did he do this for us? Okay, I'm going to begin in verse 25 with this first question. What actually did he do? Verse 25 tells us, just set husbands aside for a minute, and let's look at what Christ did for the church. Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church. I was thinking about if I were to do a survey of the husbands in this room, asking you a simple question, just one question. Why do you love your wives? How most of the guys in this room might answer that question. So I thought I would provide some answers um, to help you kind of flesh that out. Uh, I hope that, that a lot of you, maybe all of you, hopefully all of you would answer first with, well, she's beautiful. I love my wife because she's beautiful. Um, Christy's beautiful to me. If I could make a beeline to that, she's a beautiful gal, and I enjoy looking at her. <laughs> she's easy on the eyes for me. So I, that's a, you know, it's a good, good question, a good answer. That's a good answer. We'd all agree. Uh, next, we might ask, and this is, I could answer this question uh, in regards to Christy. She can run faster than me. Okay, not many of you may be able to answer, answer that way, but I can answer that way. She can run faster than me. She's funny. You might say about your wife, well, I love her because she's really funny. She really makes me laugh. Some of you might answer, well, she's a great mom. She's an unbelievable mom, and she's a great teacher to the kids. She's a super cook, might be some of the things that you might say. Uh, there's some, uh, uh, there are times, special occasions, where there's a, a pie made in our home. It's called a mountain high apple pie that is love-worthy. Christy is love-worthy simply because of that pie. I mean, it is an unbelievable pie. Um, You might answer, uh, men, in this way, you might answer that she really takes good care of me. I I know uh, most of the guys in this room and most of the wives that are are connected to you, and I can vouch for that. (laughs) Most of the guys in this room get get taken care of pretty well. Um, I could say the same. Uh, Christy takes care of me just in the right amount, not doting. I'm not much for doting, but not neglecting either. That real sweet spot in between. We might say this about our wives. I Hopefully we could, that she's smart and discerning. Okay, that we can uh, share some, some issues with her. And she's going to give us some good, wise insight to help us make sense of it. And um, we might add some other things. That's just a list that I would, uh, I would think that many of the guys in this room would answer with if they were asked the question, why we loves, love our wives. I mean, this is Hallmark material. I mean, really, Hallmark just has, an, a, a way of, has a way of making a, a pretty way of saying what I just said, the list that I just shared, right? Okay, so there's nothing wrong with those types of answers that we've shared to that question of why we loves our, love our wives. But I want you to notice the nature of the answers. I want you to just consider the nature of these answers in regards to the question. Husbands, we love our wives because they're pleasing to look at. Okay, for us, they're easy on our eyes. Okay, just think about that for a minute. Husbands, we love our wives because she's fun and she makes me laugh. Me, I'm happy when my wife is funny and she makes me laugh. I love my wife because she takes care of what's important to me, my children. 
my home, things like that. I love my wife because she makes good food for my belly. Okay? For my belly. Really, because it's all about what I want to (laughs) eat. I love my wife because she's smart and has great insight and wisdom into difficult things, and she helps me sort through those matters. I want you to just consider for a moment the nature of our love for our wives as very transactional. Is there anybody in here that can't agree with that and can't recognize that? The nature of most of us, if not all of us, to some degree, is, is our, in, in regards to our love for our wives, is very transactional. She does these things or she is these things, therefore I love her. It's not a bad system. It, it, it populates those Hallmark cards. It, you know, it kind of gives us things to talk about. We can all kind of laugh about them as I share my list. With most, most of you in here can agree with your list that you would probably share a lot of the same. This list and this transactional kind of love works pretty well uh, uh, until up until a point until it doesn't. The transactional list of the reasons that we love our wives works pretty well until maybe she gets older and she's not able to take care of herself like the way she used to. Maybe she doesn't have the time to exercise or eat right like she used to. Or maybe she's not trying as hard. Maybe life has come at her uh, from a number of different directions. Maybe she's feeling down and she's just not very funny lately. What do we do then with our currency if there's no currency? If it's a transactional thing, what do, then we do, what do we do with our love, guys? If she makes us laugh and she's funny and that's the reason we love her, what do we do then when she's not so funny? What do we do when she's tired of cooking and she looks at you and says, either you're cooking or you're bringing us out to eat? Because I got nothing in me. If that's the reason you love her, what do you do then? There's no currency there. The whole transactional love thing works pretty well until it doesn't. It works pretty well until maybe she's super frustrated with the whole mom thing and you come home to the words, I quit. Let's get rid of this row of kids. What do you do then, guys? What then, really? There's no currency. I think if we're really honest, I think we all realize that we love one another, at least within marriage. This this may not happen toward our children so much, but especially within marriage, we love each other pretty transactionally. That's not a word, but we'll make it up for this morning's purpose. We love each other pretty transactionally. You do these things. You are these things. Therefore, I will love you. Now, if Jesus was interviewed as to why he loved the church and gave himself up for her, his answer would simply be, because I decided to. Because I decided to. That's not going to sell on a Hallmark card, will it? But that's what his answer would be in regards to his love for the church. Jesus, why have you loved the church? Well, it's because I decided to love the church. See, the kind of love that Christ had for the church had nothing to do with how it makes him feel. Can you consider that for a moment? Men who love our wives so transactionally? Can you consider that Christ's love for the church had nothing to do 
with how it made him feel. After all, I don't suspect it made him feel very good taking on human flesh and laying in a manger like with hay and cows and smells and sounds. It might be quaint for a nativity scene, but I don't think it would be that great in actually life. I don't imagine that felt very good. I don't imagine it felt very good to then live as a peasant in ancient Palestine. His love for us apparently wasn't really about feeling because I don't imagine it felt very good to get whipped with a flagrum. You know what a flagrum is? It's a, it's a strap, the Roman, ancient Roman uh, uh, st- uh, straps had these, these uh, leather strips attached to one handle. And at the end of these strips were tied various pieces of material like glass, like shards of metal. I just can't imagine that felt great. His love for us apparently didn't have anything to do with what it felt like. I can't imagine that it felt very good to have a thorn of crowns crushed into your head or to be nailed to a piece of wood or to literally drown because you can't lift your body one more time to exhale so that you can then take in some new fresh oxygen, to literally drown publicly naked. Now, his love for us didn't make him feel good. There's no currency there at all. Feel good currency. He loved us very differently than we tend to love each other. He decided to love us. The Greek word there is a Greek word that's likely familiar to a lot of you. You've been around the church for any period of time. It's the word agape. And the word agape is the type of love that describes uh, a love that is an act of the will. It is not based on feeling. It's not based on this currency that we so often exchange with one another. It is not a feeling. It is a decision. This is the kind of love that Christ had for the church. His love for us, unlike the love that most of us husbands have for our wives, was in fact a supernatural love. A decision to love that wasn't based on what we look like and how easy we are on the eyes. His love for us wasn't based on how funny we are. His love for the church was not based on how great a mom you are, moms. Or how great a dad you are, dads. His love for the church is not based on how well we can cook or how smart we are. His love for the church wasn't based on performance. It wasn't based on the many things that we use as currency with one another. His love for us, unlike even the best of husbands, was not earned love. He decided to love us, period. He decided to love us, period. That's what he did. The second question to deal with this morning is, how did he do it? 
How did he love us? It's also here in verse 25. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. I don't know if you've noticed so far and as I've been preaching that I've used past tense in regards to the love that Christ had for the church. And I used past tense because that's what comes from this passage. He loved us and past tense also he gave himself for us. Those two words, loved and gave, are past tense verbs in reference to Christ and what he's done for the church comes directly from this passage. Loved and gave are past tense, and specifically, they're aorist tense verbs, meaning that they're pointing back to a point in time where something happened at a point in time. And I think those are pointing to two different things. Love points back to something that happened before God ever said, let there be light. Turn over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to consider love first. We're asking and answering that second question, how did he go about doing this? How did he love us? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 is where I'm going to begin, but I'm going to focus primarily on verses 4 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, before he said, let there be light, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, love past tense here. Love aorist tense is pointing back to an event. It's pointing back to his love for the church, that decision kind of love, the same word there that's used over there in in chapter 5, agape kind of love that predestined us to be his bride in ages past before we were even made. Now, over the years, that hasn't exactly been a welcome doctrine for some folks. The whole notion, we're so inundated with merit-based love, we can't even make sense of that kind of love. We have to try and find some merit in ourselves that would deserve being chosen if we're going to have this conversation about being chosen. I want you to see right here that his choice of us and choice for us was made before he said, let there be light. That's the kind of love that he's had for us. A love that was made, a love that fueled a decision that was made in ages past, before you were born. I want you to know that that can be the best news you hear all day. I enjoy a Spurgeon quote, or have enjoyed a Spurgeon quote over the years, where he's speaking to this particular predestination and election conversation. He said, I believe the doctrine of election, because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. Anyone else? Can we be really honest? And he must have elected me before, he he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could have found in myself, or I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Man, I'm glad 
He chose us in ages past before we were born. Man, that's the best news you can hear all day. The kind of love, for, kind of love for he, that he had for us was decision love. And that decision was made before he said, let there be light. And thankfully, it's before you could prove why it was a bad decision. Does anybody else enjoy that? Before we could prove it was a bad decision. This isn't a new concept if you've been reading your whole Bible. If you've parachuted into the New Testament and you live there and you eat there and you only look to the Old Testament for some VeggieTales stories, some moral messages on why you ought to have courage, then you've missed this. But let me show it to you. Let me show you this is not a new concept. Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Okay, this is speaking of the nation of Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of, to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it wasn't because you could cook good. It wasn't because you were beautiful. It wasn't because you were funny. It wasn't because you can run fast. It wasn't because you do a good job taking care of the, taking care of the kids. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. Christ's Choosing us to be his bride before God said, let there be light, is just in keeping with what his father has done with Israel. Chosen before they were even a people. And not chosen because they were anything special. Ironically, if you were to be God and you were going to choose a people, I think I probably would have gone with the Egyptians. They're building pyramids. They're doing cool stuff. At least the, the Israelites, man, they couldn't even do anything cool. And yet God set his love on them. Not because they were worthy of that, but because he decided to love them. That's how Christ has loved the church, thankfully. He loved the church in ages past, before we even were. He decided to love us. That's the past tense of the love. That's why it's past tense. He gave himself for us. This is also past tense. I hope you don't have to think long to consider how he gave himself for us. If, you, if you're still in Ephesians, you can look over there at chapter 2. Let me show you a passage to help you look also at some past tense verbs so maybe we can make sense of what event he's talking about, this, this past tense event, this punctiliar aorist event where he gave himself for us in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by some blood. By the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 
Man, the love past tense is pointing back to a decision that was made before time began. And the gave past tense is pointing back to a bloody hill, Golgotha, with a bloody cross. The cross is where he gave himself for the bride chosen in ages past. How did Christ love us and give himself up for us? Well, it was truly an arranged marriage. It was truly an arranged marriage, decided in ages past, and the bride price was his own life, nothing less. That was the bride price. The third question that we were going to deal with this morning is why did he love the church and give himself up for her? Why did he love the church and give himself up for her? There are three phrases. What I will, uh, I've, I've identified these phrases before as we've, uh, as, if you've been here before, you've probably heard the, the phrase of a henna clause or a purpose clause. In the Greek, there's a word that, uh, the word is henna, and it means in order that or for the purpose of. And it explains reasoning or it explains uh, why something has happened. And there are three of them in this passage. I love translations that have in order that or so that or the word that. If you have a translation that has translated those out of this passage, then get a new translation. The New American Standard is a faithful one. The, the English Standard Version is one that we use. And just listen to these that's and so that's in this passage because we're going to just take just a moment and try and ask and answer this question. Why did Christ love the church and give himself up for her? There's three purpose clauses here beginning in verse 26. First purpose clause, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here's the second one. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And here's the third. That she might be holy and without blemish. There's an ancient device that they used in um, Greek, ancient Greek. Um, it's called a chiasm. It's a, a literary device where they would, uh, typically it's three things, but it could be uh, an odd number of things that called to attention something in the center. That's what's going on right here. This is a chiasm where two things are surrounding the most important thing. The first and third henna clauses point toward the second henna clause. So we're going to follow them in that order with just a brief explanation. Here's the first henna clause. That he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy, that he might make her pure, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He loved and gave himself for the church. For the purpose of making her worthy of the love that he has bestowed on her. I'm going to say this a different way because I really want you to get this. His love for the church wasn't because she's worthy, but in order to make her so. His love for the church what was, not, was not because she's worthy, but in order to make her so. And he did this by cleansing her with the washing of water with the word. The washing of water, uh, this, the, the definite article there points to an event. And it points to something that most of the people in this room have done. You've been baptized. For those who are trusting Christ and you haven't been baptized, maybe this will be a great reason for you to go, I need to be baptized. This definite article is pointing here to something that happened to you when you were baptized, where you were washed with water and you had a word that accompanied that. And that word was a confession that said, I have no hope outside of Christ as my Savior and Lord. 
And there was another word that the baptizer shared over you where he baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was that point in time where you were cleansed of your sins, where you were sanctified. You were this first thing that he mentioned here as a purpose clause. As many baptisms as I've done, as many times as I've preached on it, as many times as we've talked about it here as a church, this was the first glimpse that I had into a picture which was apparently an ancient practice of a bridal bath. I mean, really, it was a bridal bath. That's a good thing because apparently they didn't bathe every day back in those days. So thankfully, husbands, right, our new bride is going to take a bath the day of the wedding. Woo, awesome. We're off to a great start. It wasn't just a Jewish custom either. It was an ancient Greek custom, a bridal bath. Have you ever thought about your baptism that way? To cleanse you of your impurities so that you would be ready for your groom. That's the first purpose clause here. Let's look at the third purpose clause, and then we'll move to the most important one, the center. The third purpose clause comes from the end of verse 27. That she might be holy and without blemish. The beauty he won for her clearly refers to her moral perfection. He's speaking of the church here as this beauty that's bestowed on her, that's won for her, that implies and speaks to moral perfection. He made her what she could not be on her own. Morally pure and morally perfect. These two henna clauses basically made it to where the bride, us, could show up wearing white. Think about that for a minute. We could show up wearing white because of what he's done here in making us holy and without blemish and in sanctifying us with the washing of water with the word. The central, the central henna clause, the central purpose clause, the second of the three is in the first part of verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Why did Jesus do what he did for us? Why did he love us in ages past and set his love on us? Why did he give himself for us? This is the central purpose that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that we might be presentable to him free of the spot and stain of sin. That's why he did this. And secondly, free also of the wrinkles, the hard-worn paths of besetting sins. Man, he's freed us of all that. He's beautified us from all that. And he presents the church to himself, now beautifully adorned with clothing that he won for her. I found as I studied this ancient bridal bath and these ancient traditions that here's what I found. That typically the groom in an ancient marriage would get his wife after she had her bridal bath, bridal bath good thing. And he would present her to his father. Here's how this is different in this case. Christ finds us, the church, destitute, outcast, not worthy of wearing white, for sure. He finds us undeserving. 
And he bathes the bride of Christ, the church, and he really cleanses her. We're not talking about some sort of metaphor. We're talking about a real reckoning where he cleanses the bride and then he brings the bride and presents her to himself. Man, he's the center of this whole thing. This whole thing is about him. It's all for him. I'm thinking about the number of sermons that I've preached over the years, the number of gospel presentations that I've shared over the years that's about this. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. It's all for you. Christ died for you. Scratching the itch of the transactional kind of love. Consider this for a moment, people of God. Christ died for you so that you would be presentable to him. That's the ultimate purpose. He's the the, the center of this thing. He's the recipient of this whole thing. He's the focus of this whole thing, not you. Yes, absolutely, Christ died for you so that you'd be presentable, so that you'd be beautiful, so that you could wear white, free of stain and spot and wrinkle. And the presentability of the bride is the reason Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's three things that come out of this passage. What did our groom do? He loved the church. How did he do it? He loved us in ages past before we even were. Thank goodness. And he gave himself up for us with broken flesh Real blood on a very real cross. Why did he do this? So that we would be washed, so that we would be cleansed, so that we would be purified and holy and spotless without wrinkle, so that we would be presentable and beautifully adorned for a groom that's due a beautiful bride. I have one application point, just one, on purpose. I have lots of application points, but I'm just going to land on one because I want us leaving with this. I want to spend every bit of currency I have left on this application point. And I think this application point speaks to the, the feeling of impossibility. Men, if you could identify with me at the beginning of this sermon where I'm saying, man, this seems like it's impossible, I, I object. If anybody like, yeah, kind of, no kidding. I, yeah, I kind of feel that way too, come to think of it. I think this is going to speak to that. This one application point. All that we've considered that Christ has done for the church in these last few minutes, why he did it and what he actually did, all those things husbands can't do for their wives. Anybody want to exhale with me? Husbands can't do those things for their wives. It truly is an impossibility for a man to do these things for his wife. I thought about it just to cut, I guess it was a couple weeks ago or maybe it was last week when we were actually in this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, where we were preaching the, the, the passages for the wives. The, in verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Did anybody go, okay, I know Jesus is the, the church's Savior, but I know my husband is not my Savior. 
Did any men in here connect that dot? I hope you did. I hope you were sitting there thinking, man, okay, I know Jesus is our Savior, but I'm not her Savior. You can't be. That's impossible. It truly is Everest. Man, the kind of love that the Savior demonstrated informs and influences the husband. But man, it can't be replicated. (laughs) It can't be copied. There's only one Everest. And this whole passage that I've made a beeline to just tell me what husbands are supposed to do a million times, this whole passage is ultimately about him. He's not an illustration for marriage. Marriage is an illustration for him. This passage is not about marriage. This passage is about Jesus. Man, instead of saying, Jesus, can you move out of the way so I can figure out what husbands are supposed to do? I think what I've done this morning is, husbands, can you move out of the way so we can get to enjoy and know our groom? Move, husbands. Sit down and be quiet. Let's enjoy our groom together. Let's enjoy who he is and what he's done for us. I think about how many times you get in a bind in marriage, and man, Christy and I have had our challenges, and where we're just like in the throes. This thing's hopeless, and you cry out to Jesus, Jesus, please help me with my marriage. How about if we flip that around and say, marriage, please help me out with my Jesus. Marriage, please show me what is really central and what really matters in eternity. Man, that's the takeaway from this morning. Maybe the best thing that can happen to your marriage or your future marriage, for those of you who are single maybe, is to realize it's not ultimate. It's not your ultimate identity. Your whole life is not about your marriage. We're not marriageians. We're Christians. Husbands, we're not husbandians. We're Christians. Like, does anybody else feel the branch in the middle of your face when you're in a nice stroll in the woods and go, wow, it clobbers me? Wait a second, this passage is about Jesus? The best thing that can happen to my marriage is maybe to stop focusing so much on it and focus instead on our ultimate eternal marriage to Christ. Boy, that would set some people free. If there's a woman in this room that's looking to her husband to be her savior, you're both doomed. You're going to be miserable. I said a husband. If there's a wife in this room that's looking to her husband to be a savior... You're both doomed. If there's a wife, though, in here that's looking to her husband to model who her true Savior is, who she's truly enjoying, then we're talking about giving that marriage some wings. Man, I wonder sometimes if we can get so focused on marriage and how our spouse is doing or not doing or how our marriage is doing or not doing that we're like the kid. You've seen it before, guys. I know you have. You stay up all night to put together that perfect gift for the kid of Christmas morning, and the kid comes out, 
and plays with the box. Man, we get so fixated on our marriage and all oh, oh, this. How's my husband doing? How's my wife doing? How am I doing on this marriage? That we end up playing with the box. And marriage matters. It's important. But compared to our marriage with Christ, it is the box. Christ is the gift. Marriage informs that, not the other way around. Man, just here is a few thoughts for you. First of all, earthly marriage is only temporary. Did you know that? You know you won't be married in heaven? Everybody in here needs to hear that. You won't be married in heaven, like for eternity. That is, to one another. We'll be married to our groom for eternity. Man, just get some perspective here. There's one passage I want to share with you that I really think speaks to this. This is the last passage. If you'd like to turn there, you can. You don't have to. You can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what Paul's getting at. The same guy that wrote this book or this letter to the Corinthian church is the same guy that wrote Ephesians. Listen to what he says about marriage. I'll let y'all turn if you want to turn. You don't have to, though. You can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, or the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Listen to what he says. If you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. If you're free from a wife... Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Amen. Anybody married folks? Say, yeah. Show sure enough. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Look what he says next. From now on, let those who have wives Live as though they had none. What? See what he says next. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as those, that, those who were not rejoicing. And those who buy as those who had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What that passage says to me, to me is keep the temporary stuff temporary and marriage is in the list you see that if you're married live as though you're not live as though you don't have a wife man that puts some i think sheds some light on what we're talking about this morning ultimately the temporary stuff has to remain the temporary stuff we can't make it the ultimate when you try and make something that shouldn't be ultimate ultimate you're doomed. You're going to have a life of disappointment. You're going to have a terrible marriage. <laughs> but man, when you make the eternal the focus and you put the temporary where it should be, you're in for some great things. All the stuff we're talking about in this marriage section, in this home series, 
and all the problems and all the difficulties and all the challenges, the challenges that go along with it, these are all temporary. <laughs> They're all temporary. But our marriage to him, though, is forever. This passage isn't about marriage. This passage is about Jesus. This ought to set the single or divorced free from the baggage that you carry. I was single to the age of 28. Christy and I dated a long time. We were engaged for a year. We dated for five years. I spent a long time being single. I, that's, to me, that's a long time, 28. It seemed long. So I know some of the baggage that the single can carry, and I know the divorced carry baggage sometimes too. Let me just set you free from something. Let me encourage you in this. Your life is not less meaningful in some way because you're single or divorced. Not if you're a Christian. Your groom loved you well before your previous marriage. And he paid the bride price for you every cent. He gave you a bridal bath cleansing you with his very own blood. You're not somehow incomplete or damaged because he decided to love you. To the married, I'll give this final encouragement. Maybe the best thing that can happen to your marriage is to not make it the main thing. Wives, don't expect too much of your husbands. He won't make a good savior. <laughs> Live like you don't have one because you're so delighted and satisfied with a groom who decided to love you in ages past even though you didn't deserve it. That's going to set you and your husband both free. Husbands, give your wives a break, expecting them to drop everything and make your life easier with all that help. All that help that we've been promised from our helpmate. Man, let me encourage you, dude. Just set your wives free. After all, your ultimate need has already been met by our groom who washed you, who cleansed you so that you would be presentable for eternal bliss with our Lord. Man, that's the ultimate need. So chill. Give your wife a break. Man, the best thing that could happen to her is that you fall in love with this amazing Savior that we have. I hate that phrase, fall in love, because it implies fall out. That you grow captivated with our groom. Let's land there. That you learn to enjoy him first and foremost. That could be the best thing that's ever happened to your wife. And the best thing that's ever happened to your marriage. Keep the ultimate the ultimate. Leave the temporary stuff where it should be. Marriage matters, but man, it's temporary. It is truly impossible for anyone to do or be who Jesus is to us. Amen? It is truly impossible. And that's the message for today.